It's a fact. Life can be hard. And dealing with its challenges is no mean feat. The ability to recover quickly in the face of adversity is known as resilience and can be our best ally during times of stress. Welcome to The Resilient Road. In this series, we'll look at human stories of perseverance, exploring what makes someone resilient and what we can all do to help nurture this process in our own lives. I'm Sinead. I'm joined by my colleague, Brian. Hello. And my other colleague, Elle. Hi. We're part of Positive Group, a team who uses psychology and neuroscience to help people make positive changes to improve their health and well-being. In this episode, we meet broadcaster Makita Oliver. I can honestly say bankruptcy is the best thing that happened to me, not even one of the best thing that happened to me. Surviving anything in life changes you. And I survived it and I had to survive it and I had to fight. Money is a big part of day-to-day life. Many of us attach our self-worth and sense of safety and security to money, and financial challenge can be particularly difficult to navigate. So, money. In general, this seems to be a really uncomfortable subject of discussion for most people. Why do you guys think that is? What's going on? Why do people not feel comfortable talking about money? I think money is a sort of metaphor in our society. It's become correlated with status. And we are status-driven primates where we're interested in where we sit. And we have this capacity as human beings to compare ourselves to other people. And there's a big area of social psychology around what's called social comparison theory, where we look at other people and measure ourselves against them and see if we stack up. And if you measure yourself against people who are better off than you, that's quite depressogenic. (laughs) If you measure yourself against people who are less well-off than you, uh, that can actually make you feel, I'm okay, I'm a lucky, unfortunate person. So I think it's, it's on the human hard disk to go compare, go despair, which actually can make us miserable. One of the tragedies, I think, is that human beings who gain more money think it's going to make them happy. Mm. There's very, very little correlation between wealth and happiness once you get above a certain income. And so you then want more money because you think if you have more money, you'll be happier. But actually, it doesn't, it doesn't actually fulfill its promise. I think we should get Go Compare, Go Despair on a T-shirt, L. <laughs> I was literally just about to say, are we going to let Brian get away with Go Compare, Go Despair? <laughs> go Despair. <laughs> it's excellent. It's excellent. <laughs> I'm sure someone else has said it. I probably plagiarised it from someone. It doesn't where. matter. It doesn't matter. <laughs> Yeah. Um, But, you know, I think this is something that's really important for us to be aware of, because if we're all aware that chasing more money won't bring the satisfaction that we think it will or the happiness that we think it will or the completeness that we think it will, then why aren't we talking about it? I feel like in terms of sort of with friends or with family, I've just seen really differing levels of openness about money. Mm. If you're close friends, people are pretty open. But I think um, there's definitely quite a lot of secretism Mm -hmm. around it too. Mm -hmm. It's a weird thing. Yeah, I think. I mean, I think it is such an interesting topic to be thinking about. And I'm really interested to hear more from Makita because I know that since um, she went bankrupt, she's been she's been a real advocate in this area, and she is speaking up in this area, which I think is no bad thing. In Makita's story, we are interested in exploring how do you rebuild yourself following such a personal financial disaster in the public eye? I'm Makita Oliver and I'm a broadcaster. I'm so pleased 
that we're talking about money because there is a huge stigma. It's weird. I think people would rather talk about their sex life than their money, which is which I think says a lot about us. I don't even know what it says, but it definitely says something. <laughs> I think it's the same where people talk about their working life. It's like shame or pride and I guess people are quite polite and uptight when it comes to their personal finance. It's strange because it's there in front of us every day, but it's like the, our silent friend that no one really wants to discuss because it rules us. Starting a conversation is always going to be a good thing because everyone has money issues, even the rich people. I'm Nikita. I'm Simon. And we're your all-new, all-singing, all-dancing dynamic duo of television. So when I was 15, I started working on uh, a show called Pop World. But I wasn't looking for it, and I don't know whether people do say that often, but I really wasn't. I, it was the last thing on my mind. Like, maybe I should get a job on telly. I was just trying to get through my blasted GCSEs. Hello! Welcome to Team 4 on the day before, the day before New Year's Day. It was a show about pop music. I think Simon Amstel, who I hosted with my dear, great friend Simon Amstel, he described it as more of a chat show with pop music in it rather than a pop show with chat in it. And it turned out to be a massive success. I just so couldn't believe I was on telly. I was just like, oh my God. And it was like the launch of E4, so it was on every day. So it was quite an intense way to start TV because everyone watched Pop World. So it felt great when it was a success. It was a real moment of unity for us as a team. What I had to do for a year was I had to get up, do Pop World in the morning, and then go to school. So I had to do Pop World from like 5 a.m. till 11, and then go to school at 1 till like 5 every day. And I was 15, so I was so tired. <laughs> So my life was different because I couldn't do anything. Because I started so young, I think it affected my relationship with money in quite a weird way because my parents were really bad with money, so they didn't really say, like, right, we should start you an ISA. There was no talk of, like, structure. I didn't even have an accountant for about three years, and I was earning really good money for, for a 15-year-old. It was a bit of a mess, to be honest. My agent at the time, bless her, Caroline, was like, we need to, like, there's no structure, so she got me some weird bank manager, and I was like, what is going on? So I was doing really well and, and, and I was just a bit overexcited. So my relationship with money was all over the place and I didn't really feel like I deserved the money, so I, I was quite frivolous with it. My whole life I've been, I guess, a little bit of a, the sloppy one. You know, I didn't finish any school education. I went to six different schools. I kept getting bullied. I kept getting kicked out. I wasn't really the one that people were like, what's she going to do next? So it was just very unexpected. And it happened right in the middle of that kind of time. It wasn't like, and then I grew up. So I was in a really crazy teenage headspace. And to take on this very adult role and responsibility was quite a big deal. And I thought I was all right. But life changed very quickly. I didn't really know what I was doing. <laughs> I just was just going to work and just putting it in the account, paying my tax and everything was fine. But I was just getting more and more depressed and stressed. I think when I was first like 15 to 20, it was this whirlwind and it was this and it was this great time. Um but then I think from 20 
to basically going uh, bankrupt at 26. I think that period of time, my relationship with money got a bit weird because my relationship with work got really weird. I started messing up at work and being late and uh, not taking it as seriously as it needed to be taken. Today, it's give me an I. I. <laughs> give me an N. N. In the studio. Um, and thinking that I would just have a particular job forever and um, that I didn't need to give it the, re the respect and, and professionalism that it needed. Um, I was always good at my job, but that's, as someone told me, 30% of it. 70% is you've got to be on time and you've got to be professional. But um, I was just a bit of a mess. I had a lot of close friends that also suddenly became well-known. And I loved that time. It was so much fun. It was so great to have, like, you know, my core group of friends all just suddenly killing it. We were all just killing it. And that's, that's such a fun time. But that always has to change, that time. And I think I just didn't know what to do when it changed. So I just started spending money really badly and frivolously and quickly and irrationally. And I knew it would take me somewhere really dangerous. I basically just ran to the sun. <laughs> I was just like, come on then, let's see how much mess we can make. I think when I was about 26, I realized that I was making a little less money than I had for about 10 years. And that was quite a shock because I'd been so financially secure for such a long time. I think they changed the hours on T4 or something. We did less shows. I wasn't really working outside of T4 because I wasn't really trying to. I was sort of just feeling quite depressed and insular and I didn't really, I didn't even really feel comfortable on T4. I didn't really want to be on TV, to be honest. I was just really hating being recognized. I was overweight. I was just, uh, I, I was just going out too much and I just felt really bad all the time. And when you feel bad, you do not want to be on television anymore. So I gradually stopped working so much and started making less money. My reaction to that was to spend more uh, out of panic. And I knew I had tax coming up and I just kind of ignored all my emails from my accountant. Just didn't know what was going on in my life. Never mind, look at a tax bill. I don't need that stress. I'm already really stressed. I just stopped looking at it. It's a huge thing to do when it comes to, you know, the legalities of paying what you have to pay to live in this country and in life. And uh, it very quickly spiralled into two tax bills. And that, because I was earning really good money, that's enough to, um, to take you somewhere really hard to get out of. By 2011, the situation sort of had got really serious. So I had a meeting with my accountant, and that's when he said, you're going to have to go bankrupt. And then he told me about, like, the different kinds of bankrupt. You can go, no options, nice. I was, like, waiting for, like, the good option. That never came. Um, and uh, it just sounded so long. I was just like, what do you mean? All I could hear was five-year this and three-year that. I, could, I just couldn't believe it. I think I was in shock that I'd let things get so bad and how serious it was, to the point where I had, like, a legal meeting with one of the guys to tell me, like, who was going to take over my bankruptcy, and I didn't even go. And my accountant was like, you will go to prison if you don't deal with this. So I was like, oh, right, this is serious. I can't just blag my way through this. 
And then I was like, is there any way I can go bankrupt like quietly, like on the sideline? And he was like, if you're lucky, the papers won't find the story, but it has to legally be documented and put out there. And, that, and what happens is papers go looking for the names. I did six months quietly going bankrupt, not telling my boyfriend, only told my mum, didn't tell anyone in my life, which was insanity. So having to go to these really horrific financial meetings, being told what money I was going to live on, how things were going to go basically from here. And it was, it was really shocking. The worst meeting was, uh, I had a meeting with two women from uh, a company in this like huge glass high rise building in the city. It was so fancy, uh, to the point where I thought something good was going to happen when I got to the top of the lift. <laughs> and uh, they, I felt like they had possibly watched me on the telly, thought I thought I was too big for my boots and were quite enjoying taking me down a peg or two. And that's fine, I get that, but it was really, really hard for me. I just felt so small and scared and alone. I mean, it's bankruptcy and I was, I was 26, I wasn't a child, but this is still people's lives. And if I, if I had been better with money and owned things, <laughs> like a flat or a car, they would have taken those things, even if I had kids. And that's fine, it's a legality. But when you go into those rooms and they tell you how your life's going to be, it was the worst meeting of my life. And uh, I can't believe I survived it. I feel sorry for that 26-year-old me that had to go through that. So just hearing the start of Makita's story, I'd like to touch on the concept of shame associated with her journey towards bankruptcy. And I just think that when it comes to human emotion, you know, love is obviously a really potent driver of human behavior. But I think on the flip side, shame is almost as far as you can go in the other direction. I think shame is this very kind of toxic emotion that can really drive us into this real avoidance space. I think shame is, a, is an extraordinary human emotion. I think it's partly because we're social animals mm -hmm. and therefore the social group sets some rules um, about how you ought, should, must behave. So I think what's happening for Mikita is that two things happen. One, one is that she's had this extraordinary young life. Uh, and as she said, it's fun and she's making lots of money and she's really enjoying it. And then actually what's quite interesting is that it starts to curdle a bit. She's not as happy. She's not enjoying it as much. Uh, she puts on weight. She doesn't like her work as much. So she does less. And then she gets a tax bill based on previous earnings, which then just clobbers her. And and I think what happens with shame, and, and I think there's a two levels of shame here. There's a personal shame, which is what's happened to her, she's lost things, she's no longer got things, and she's being told by other people. But there's also a public humiliation. So she's sort of being put in the stocks. And interestingly, if, if I asked any of you to, to talk to somebody about something you've done that you're ashamed about, it's very, very difficult to do mm -hmm, that because mm -hmm. we don't want to talk about it. Because the way we're perceived, or we believe we will be perceived in the eyes of others, is too frightening. Mm -hmm. So we don't want to talk about the thing that we find distressing because other people may perceive us less well mm -hmm. and they may reject us or exclude us. So it's an incredibly powerful emotion. Absolutely. And 
I wonder, Elle, what your thoughts are. I mean, listening to Makita, she, she sounds quite upbeat when she's telling this story almost. Um, and I know she's, she's kind of had time to process and deal with it. But what are your thoughts about kind of the journey that, that she must have been on when she was um, experiencing the kind of build up to and then acceptance of the bankruptcy? Yeah, um, it's interesting hearing her voice again because I was an avid fan of Pop World Me growing too. up. Yep. Um, <laughs> but yeah, and I think about her tone because throughout you do detect this optimism. We know that being optimistic is a really protective thinking style. You know, how you perceive certain situations can really influence how you behave as a result of them. I do think that her bankruptcy was also linked to her behaviour yeah. So in some way, this wasn't something that happened to her. Mm-hmm. She um, was obviously having a bit of a tough time, as in she wasn't enjoying work so much. And then perhaps she was attributing less value to the money she was earning. Mm-hmm. Equally, when she talks about running to the sum and the idea that she said at one point that she was spending out of panic. And I think psychologically, that's really interesting, that idea that that's your way of coping, but also it's the thing that's going to make things worse. I think that's a really good point. And I think I think what what happens with that spending is that it has a hedonic effect. It, it activates your dopamine circuit. So this is retail therapy that actually we feel good, but the benefit we get from it is incredibly transient. So then we have to do it again. And it's an addictive circuit. So it doesn't actually make you feel happier. It doesn't actually make you feel more contented. Yeah. I think what Makita demonstrates is resilience. So she has demonstrated that she can be bullied and kicked out of school and then forge a career in front of millions of viewers and succeed. Now, that is a transferable skill. I think then what happens is that she talks about getting into this as a 15-year-old and being incredibly successful. And so her colleagues in, 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 in the media... So now she has a social group that she's working with who are all having fun and enjoying it. And this is a very toxic mix because it's fun, it's hedonic, it's pleasurable. And I think this links to Sarah Jane Blakemore's work, who's a professor of neuroscience at uh, UCL, who's done some fascinating research on the adolescent brain. What she has shown is that the the adolescent brain goes through this extraordinary re-sculpting process under the influence of huge numbers of hormones. And the prefrontal cortex, which is your sensible executive, goes offline a bit, which is why youngsters tend to be more impulsive and risk-taking. So I think a lot of Makita's behavior is normal. And she's doing what youngsters do. And your your prefrontal cortex sort of comes back online at about 24, 25, 26. So this all fits. And she's got this hedonic fun pleasure, but the peer group, her immediate group of peers are doing the same thing. So she's caught up in that vortex. And I think what happened to her is quite understandable. I think when you think about it in that way, it's it's quite unfair, really, that there wasn't the structure there to support her. Because if she was, you know, 15 when she got into this, then I think that actually she entered into quite an adult world. So Mm -hmm. it's an adult thing to have to deal with money and finance and bank managers and taxes. So she should have had that kind of help and support and structure there. She starts to get all this external validation in the form of the support from fans, the finances, um, the peer group, the fun, the acceptance that perhaps she didn't get at school. Mm. So she gets this huge surge in external validation. And then what you start to hear as the story goes on is that it seems to almost lose some meaning. So I'm really interested in her kind of journey through this. So I waited six months and then the news broke. 
And this is when if something was in the papers, it was still a big deal. And I was just like, oh, you've got to be joking. It wasn't on the front cover, but it was pretty big in the middle. <laughs> and I was just like, no! And I remember like trying to hide the paper from my boyfriend. The fact that my financial life was spread out for everyone to see, that's what I found so difficult because money is so private. And I was just like, oh, come on. They like went into detail about like things and I just thought, oh God, I felt so naked. Denial, fear and shame. Oh, what a combination. No wonder I didn't want to get out of bed in the morning. <laughs> that's so, that's such a horrible state to be in. And I was in that for a good year. They told me I'd have to move out of my two-bedroom flat in West London, which I didn't think was extravagant, but I guess it was quite nice. And I'd have to go uh, live at my mum's. I just felt so like I was one big walking self-fulfilling prophecy of uh, failure. I was like, you knew this. You knew that if you hurtled to the sun, it could get bad and you've let it get as bad as it has and it doesn't... It feels all the things you thought it would, just crap and <laughs> scary and disappointing and uh, just deeply upsetting. I was just deeply upset with myself and I had no idea how I was going to get through it. And then my boyfriend dumped me. So I actually lost everything and in turn felt really quite free. I suddenly was like, I have nothing. I have six bags of clothes, but I have no, I've no, my relationship's over, my flat's gone, uh, my career might be over, and I've got no money in the bank. I was like, wow. And so I sort of just went feral, which I guess is what happens when you lose everything. I became, I became animalistic about uh, my life. The day that changed everything was my friend Charlie, my dear friend, invited me around to his house. And I was like, I just don't understand why things aren't going well. And I've, Luke's gone and I'm going back. And he said, listen, I'm just going to say, you're overweight, your weave's bad, you've just gone bankrupt, Luke's dumped you, and to be honest, you smell a bit. You need to change it up. <laughs> I was like, oh, right, okay, thank you. It was great that... Charlie said those things because I was thinking it. I knew other people were thinking it, but he was just the only one that had the balls to tell me because no one wanted to hurt my feelings. And he was just like, enough now. Like, she's sinking. Someone needs to talk to her. And it resonated with me in a way that it resonates with me now. You can't live a certain way and expect to attract anything that you want. In the same way that when you live a certain way, it's so easy to attract what you want. You're more powerful than you think. And I was living literally in the least powerful part of myself. I was just bathing in it. I was like renting a flat in the most sort of empty part of who I was. And I just stopped talking to all the rest of myself. I was like, do you know what? There is no way that this is the end of my story. I'm not being buried bankrupt with this bad hair. I was just like, no for what I'd done in my career. There must be something stronger in me. If I've managed to do all that, there must be more in me. I've got more in me. I fought like a maniac to get in shape. I went to a million meetings and I was just like, I want this job, I want this job, I want this job. And I worked really hard to get myself back in people's minds in a positive uh, way and remind people that I'm good at what I do and I can do it really well and 
it's important that that is remembered. I'm just crap with money. <laughs> but because I was still working, I had an allowance. Because the thing is, you do, I still had money that they take. So your debt is cleared and then they take your money. But it was like this weird duality because I live in the spare room at my mum's. But it's also like hosting the mobos. <laughs> Oh, what a completely lovely last award. That was absolutely lovely. Emily Sandy, congratulations. Just completely swept the board tonight. And I remember I had to host the Movos and it was great and I did a really good job. And then the next morning we get an email and they're going, we were very aware that Makista hosted a high-profile event at the weekend. We expect to see the fee from that in our account. I was like, shit, can you not let me enjoy my success for one second? It's like having this weird godparent that hates you. <laughs> God, the worst was like when my successful friends, obviously they're just my mates, but they are quite successful. They're like, we'll take you out for dinner. I was like, oh, please don't turn me into the charity friend. I had to really change my life in that way. I didn't want to go for big dinners and, and whoever get it for me. I didn't want that. I wanted to just change my life. I was like, I don't want to go if I can't afford it. That's not who I am. I've always been, been in those places because I had money. I don't want to be there with no money. What's the point? So I just um, changed my life and, and like got back to basics and hung out with my family. And obviously I saw all my friends all the time, but just like I just went around to their house and cooked <laughs> instead. Since I'd basically started working on telly, I hadn't really uh, hung out with myself or thought about who I was or what I liked. Or I was just sort of this bad caricature of myself called Makita Oliver, who was like a nightmare. <laughs> and I uh, I just started like liking myself again. That was it. I didn't really like myself for a really long time and I started to really try and like myself again. And that in turn just changed my life, changed it completely and changed the way people were with me because I was like skint, but I was really calm <laughs> and really like happy. And it was quite weird because it was really unexpected from myself or anyone else. I was like, this should be a really bad time, but you've never looked or been better. I was like, I know, I don't know what it is. I was like, I don't know, bankruptcy really agrees with me. I suddenly felt really worthy of like love and um, felt really confident and I'd lost loads of weight and I felt great. And I just called my agent and was like, let's set up some meetings, I'm ready. And I just went to loads of meetings and said, listen, I know what's happened, but I'm good and you know I'm good and I want to do V Festival this year I want to do that I want to do that I know that's happening and I got like four jobs and the funny thing is if you go anywhere with an air of success people just believe you they were like oh god are you working again what's going on I was like no not yet but I just looked like I was <laughs> I just had the energy of someone that was working and I can't tell you how different that made those meetings because I went in like uh, you'd be a fool not to hire me for this gig. And I did really good jobs. Killed that V Festival. <laughs> so I really enjoyed pairing everything back. Like, I, I enjoyed being creative. And it was great in a weird way, because I just, it, there was no questions. The first year, six months, was really hard. But the last two years, it was like... I got really into saving. I, I got really into rationing. I got really into like deals at supermarkets or like chickpeas. I was like, you know what? I've never really lived in a budget because I've always had money that I've worked and made. So let's live really cheaply. And because and I was training and losing weight and all this stuff, I just suddenly started living very differently. 
And it felt great after living in such indulgence for so long. And actually, it was quite nice to sort of be stripped. I just went down to the ground and built myself back up from the bare bones. After three years, a lot of back and forth. And actually, they made me pay like a big chunk to get out. They gave me an offer and I took it. (laughs) But that's the thing. It's like, I'm like, oh, it's only bankruptcy and I got through it. It's like, no, I have to remember people throw themselves off bridges. It's really difficult and really hard. And I really, I'm really proud of myself that I survived it and that I can be honest about it and not be ashamed of it because I was really ashamed for a long time. And it's just, it's just honestly nothing to be ashamed of. I really like looking after my money now. I I like that I have savings. I like that I'm trying to buy somewhere so that I have somewhere for the rest of my life. And I I still have an allowance, but it's just a bit bigger. (laughs) But I like living by rules now. I just wanted them to be our rules, myself and my accountants. Every month, my finances are different. And I think it's important to never be scared of them. Don't let your finances rule you. Try and work with your finance to create, you know, an incredible state. Money can help. Money does help in life, and I think it's important to be realistic about that. But to not be scared of money or lack of it. The main things I take away from it is that nothing is ever as bad as you think it's going to be, and you're stronger than you think you are. Change is always afoot. When things are going great, they're not going to keep going great forever. When things are going badly, something is always around the corner. I really do believe that the only certainty in life is change. Resilience is about, for me, what you do with what is thrown at you, what you do with it and how you turn it into something else. I really like the way Makita ends that story. It's very philosophical. It's very upbeat. Um, She's obviously learned a lot from her journey. And I think what's really good is that she's now taking the opportunity to teach and inform other people about money and the relationship towards money. What's really interesting is you see a lot of what you read in really academic papers playing out in Makita's story about the factors that contribute towards resilience. She has this self-belief. She has confidence. She is optimistic, she has cognitive flexibility, she's positive. Essentially, these resilience scales tap into, at the individual level, a lot of these things. She ticks a lot of boxes in terms of real-life resilience for me. One of the the really interesting parts of Makita's story, one of the parts that really sticks out for me, is her conversation with Charlie. I've always, as a psychologist, been really interested in this this idea of turning points. So if you can kind of come to that point of realization that what I'm doing isn't actually working out very well for me at the moment. So let's try another option. Let's try something else. Um, And I think, well, we all need a Charlie in our lives. Um, I think having that friend who's going to be there and be really honest and give you the advice that you need to hear. Elle, would you be able to tell me if I needed to change it up? Tell you when your hair's looking terrible and and you smell. (laughs) Yeah, Um, yeah, no, I think that we know that social support is hugely protective for people um, across lots of different situations. I think that um, this is social support, but with brutal honesty. And it's this idea that in this context, social support gave her this um, alternative viewpoint that um, obviously really resonated. She did say, oh, you know, everyone knew, even myself. But it took Charlie to say it to her. 
it was almost like what we often talk about um, in psychology is like more like a coaching interaction or this reflection on yourself, which is really helpful sometimes when it's from an external viewpoint. I think it's an extremely difficult message to get right. Um, and you obviously need to, to know people very well. But we shouldn't underestimate also that she did seem to have a good support network in general. We often fail to have the difficult or essential conversation. And the reason we don't have the difficult or essential conversation, both uh, as parents or as, as, as friends or as partners, uh, it is because in the short term, it can be very difficult. So it, it creates a degree of anxiety or a degree of apprehension or even fear of how it's going to impact. So we then avoid it. The danger with avoiding it is in the short term, it feels sweet because we don't have to do it. But in the medium to long term, it has a negative legacy. And I think good friends uh, will give you tough love. I mean, they will share with you what they think is best for you. And I think if we can have that honesty in our relationships, it can be really helpful. And what's been shown in the last sort of 10 or 20 years is that social connection, social support, a sense of purpose, a sense of meaning, a part of a community, doing something for not just yourself, but for others, is incredibly good for our health. And it has what Stephen Cole, who's a geneticist in America, has shown it has an epigenetic effect where it switches on good genes, which is why it tends to extend your life expectancy. And one of the difficulties with our individualistic society is it seems to be increasing the incidence of psychological problems. And another bit of Makeda's story that really sticks out for me is how she develops her, her life philosophy. She ends the, the story by saying some quite profound statements linked to resilience. Um, and the statements are all very much from cognitive behavioural therapy. They're all really helpful ways of thinking about things. You'd think we planted them. You would. <laughs> um, but one of the things that I really liked that she says was this idea of, of living the life that you want and kind of being the version of you that you want to be. So she got to this stage where she knew that she wasn't acting, behaving, looking feeling like who she is so she had gone down a very different path so what she did then was she and thanks to Charlie with his intervention it was quite a catalyst she really radically changed her behaviors engaging with the the different strategies for managing her finances but alongside that she started to reframe herself in the eyes of others she started getting back out there and reminding other people I'm good at this. Remember me, know me, I can do this job. And I think having those two strands come together is incredibly powerful. With Makita, I think one of the things that really echoes is those stoic statements that she says, you know, nothing is as bad as you think it's mm. going to be. Even Seneca talked about this, you know, a couple of thousand years ago, who's a great philosopher. He talked about um, how our imagination is often worse than the reality. And, you know, Montaigne said a uh, lovely line where he said, I, my life has been full of the most horrible miseries, most of which never happened. Mm -hmm. I think we need to be very aware that our imaginal story, our video on fast forward, can actually be catastrophic and disastrous. And we think we wouldn't cope. And I think one of the themes coming through all of these stories is their imagination is telling them they wouldn't cope, but actually they find some strength. They find something that they can hold on to. 
One other thing on Makita's story that I think is very relevant for thinking about resilience in the future and the kind of future proofing of resilience skills is that she touches towards the end on the idea of change as the only certainty. And I think the pace of change in the modern world is so fast and there are so many variables and things that can affect how we feel directly, can affect how we think. So what I really like about what Makita describes is her ability to see change as a certainty and to almost steady herself and prepare for the fact that, okay, things are going well at the moment, but they won't always be that way. And I think that acceptance of the fact that there will be ups and downs, I will feel pretty crappy at some point in the future, but I'm prepared for that. I can visualize that and I can visualize what I can do to help myself when that happens. When our mood shifts, particularly to a negative emotion like anger or or shame, the emotion then drives the cognition. So when I'm feeling angry, I have angry thoughts. When I'm feeling fearful, I have fearful thoughts. And it changes the way I think about myself, the world, and the future. And that actually is sticky because what our brain is interested in is bad things. So we have what's called a negativity bias because that helps us stay in the gene pool. So then when we create a sort of internal dialogue that's focusing on threat or something that's going to go wrong, we can get stuck in that space. Makita touched on that uh, very well, where she said, you know, for a year, Mm. she felt wretched and miserable and unhappy. I think what's fantastic is the way she pulled herself out of that. And then I think she becomes a Stoic philosopher. Talking of a great Stoic, I'd like to just mention Seneca's story, because Seneca had a very interesting relationship with wealth. Mm -hmm. And he was Nero's tutor, and he was extremely well paid. And he had ended up having a huge villa with, you know, servants and lots of horses and What concerned him was that when he got all this money and wealth, he then got fearful about losing it. So what he did is he borrowed one of his servant's clothes and he went to a town some distance away with nothing. And he found somewhere to sleep and he did some menial jobs and then he started tutoring youngsters and then he earned some money and he joined the community. And he thought to himself, well, if this is the worst thing that can happen, I can cope with this. And then he went back to his villa and slept rather well until Nero told him to take his own life, which was a rather sad end to a brilliant man's career. That is tough, love. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Elle. So in this episode, we've been looking at Makita's story and we've asked the question, how do you rebuild yourself following such a personal and public setback? So what I'd like to do now is to focus on some of the protective factors linked to resilience from Akita's story. She demonstrates an incredibly positive attitude. She sees herself as a survivor rather than a victim. She has a strong friendship group who can be really honest with her. And she also has a strong sense of self-belief. For me, I really related to Makita's thought process, which was about going back to basics life gets really busy and complicated and you can feel like a hamster, one of those little wheels. And I think that just this idea that you can just kind of stop, reset, back to basics. What makes me happy in the simplest way? What's going to get me back in a good space? For me, the key takeaway from Makita's story is the turning point. So her conversation with Charlie. And I think what we can all take away from that is that there will come a point in time where we recognize that the road that we're on isn't working for us. So the behaviors we're engaging in, the things we're thinking, it's not quite where we want to be. It's not the response that we want. So I think when you come to that point, who are the people that you can turn to? What are the strategies that you can use to choose the other path and to start to think and behave in ways that are more helpful to you?
I suppose for me, the big takeaways are that after Charlie acting as a catalyst, she then changes the way she talks to herself. She becomes very active and pursues uh, work and gets herself fit and she nourishes her social support. And I think if we can do that in times of adversity, I think we're more likely to weather the storm and keep our keel and rudder in the water. So Makita's story, I imagine, is one that will resonate with a lot of people. Money actually drives a lot of our behaviours. It drives a lot of our worries and our concerns. And Makita's story, you see an example of someone who loses it all. The, the kind of paradox is that she's been told that she's never looked better, she feels great. So actually, we perhaps attribute much more significance to money and the acquisition of it than we should do. The Resilient Road was brought to you by Positive Group and Radio Wolfgang. It was presented by me, Sinead Devine-French, with Brian Marion and Elle Crush, and featured Nikita Oliver. It was produced by Holly Aquilina. The editors were Natalia Rodriguez and Eli Block. It was sound designed by Eli Block, and the executive producer was Harry Watson. For more information about Positive Group and the work that we do, visit www.positivegroup.org.